Kuen Pout was a 19-year-old girl who helped to lead a hundred people through the, mountain of Cam- the mountains of Cambodia from the iron fist of the genocidal rule of the Camarus communist. What were you doing at 19 years of age? For this girl with little to no training, she led a group through a dense forest um, over rivers and uh, over tops of mountains. Story goes that at one point, the group found themselves exhausted and worn out and overlooking a field of thorns with the communists hot on their tails. Not sure of how to get through and with rags only on for clothes and very few of them with with shoes on their feet, um, the, the night fell on them. If they didn't find a way through the thorns, they were assuring themselves um, capture, um, torture, and, and for many, death. So here they are in the darkness, wondering which way to go. Suddenly, its story goes that a storm of, of fireflies came around them, bunched together, and by the small light on the back of these fireflies, it led them through a small path in the field of thorns. And so Kuen Pao and her band of refugees made it to the neighboring country of Thailand to freedom. Later, upon arriving to a refugee camp, a Christian, there was a Christian meeting going on, and she was invited to join. And there on the wall was a picture, and she walked over to the picture, and she said, I know this man. He led me through the forest. The picture was that of Jesus. Pastor Casey Scott said you could look at this story in a few different ways. You could first say, wow, a miracle happened. Praise, praise God. Or you could look at it um, from the standpoint and say, whoa, that's a miracle that they made it through. Not using miracle in the literal sense of just kind of like happenstance. Then there's the coincidence model that you could look at it with, right? Isn't it awesome how all those things just so happened to work out? It must have been the the perfect night and the fireflies must have smelt something on the the path and they led them through this this path. Isn't that crazy how how that seemed to work out? And then there's the, the skeptic who laughs at the gullible Christians and scoffs at the idea that we're always trying to find something to prove what we already believe, which is is easy sometimes. Now, what would you say? Do you believe in miracles? I can tell you this. On October the 28th, April the 11th, and August the 25th, I mark those days as miracles in my lifetime because those are the days that my children were born. That's amazing, right? But technically, it's not a miracle. According to the dictionary definition, a miracle is defined as an event that cannot be explained by natural or scientific law. Such events may then be attributed to supernatural beings or powers, thus attributed to God. So I suppose with that in mind, birthing a child is not technically a miracle, but don't tell my wife that, all right? Um, And don't tell your wife that either. Um, There's still something very amazing about the conception of life. Pastor Scott went on to say this. He said, a miracle is something that leads us to go, what? Wow. Praise God. Right? What? That, that, doesn't, make, that doesn't make sense. Wow. That is amazing. Praise God. Jesus was a miracle worker. How do we know that? Well, he walked on water. That definitely defies natural and scientific law. He made the the blind be able to see again. He, he healed the sick. He made five loaves of bread and two fish turn into a feast for thousands. Oh, and he told a man that was dead to, to get up out of the tomb and walk again. So this morning, 
I want to look at what I believe is one of the best miracles of Scripture outside of the resurrection, right? Because, well, get this, you can't be a Christian unless you believe in miracles. Because Jesus going to the grave and raising to, be, uh, to walk again, coming back to life, well, that's, that's a miracle, so our found, the foundation of our, our faith is built on the resurrection. We're going to talk about the resurrection here in a few weeks on Easter Sunday. You know, that Sunday is one of the best Sundays that you can invite somebody to come and worship with you. And statistics show that the numbers are high, high in your favor if you will verbally communicate to somebody, I'd like you to join me for worship. And we're going to send out things on Facebook. You'll see a sign out here in front of the, the building. You're going to maybe get a mailer in the mail or something like that. But the best invitation for somebody to join you for worship comes from you, personally inviting them. So would you, would you take some time over the next week or two and start thinking about who God might be laying on your heart to invite? And it doesn't just have to be one person. It could be a couple people to come and join you on April the 1st for one of our three services at 9, 1030 or noon. Now, outside of the resurrection of Christ, I, I believe, now this again, subjective, um, just like we talked about last week, we, we look at the parable, um, and here, here we are, I get to, I get to say, what, what do I believe is the best miracle in Scripture? I believe that it is the healing of the paraplegic. Now, the healing of the paraplegic in Jesus' early ministry was found in three of the four Gospels. We're going to look at the account from the Gospel of Mark this morning in chapter 2. It's on page 813 in the Bibles in front of you. We're going to be in and out of that uh, today, so why don't you turn over there with me? We're going to start in verse, verse 1. Now, I believe this is the best miracle outside of the resurrection because a paralyzed man is healed and is able to walk out. Um, now, if you've ever known somebody that's been bound to a wheelchair because they are paralyzed, you know what it would be like to see them walk again. I had a friend in high school, Jordan, and Jordan was a uh, a very well-accomplished swimmer, and uh, Jordan was goofing around with some friends and dove into the shallow end of a pool and broke his C2 vertebrae um, and was paralyzed diagonally down the chest uh, during my sophomore year of high school. And what I wouldn't give to see uh, that young man walk again. But as well, I love this story because we learn from this man's friends. We learn what it's like to have people that care deeply about us. And, and then as well, if the healing wasn't enough, Jesus becomes the teacher once again and begins to use this moment to, to teach folks. There, there's so much to learn from the story, so much going on. Can you expect miracles? I believe you can. Can you trust Jesus? Yes, you can. Can, can faith change your life? Absolutely. So the first thing we learned this morning is this, that we can have high expectations of Jesus. You're, you're never going to outdream God. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now, Capernaum was a, a village on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, which appears quite a bit throughout the gospel accounts. It's about 40 miles from Nazareth, where Jesus spent many, most of his growing up years. It's a fishing village um, with folks coming in and out of it, uh, which is interesting when you know how Jesus uses this place as a central hub of his early ministry. It's clear that Peter and Andrew and Matthew um, called this place home, and some believe that James and John did as well, and these were all disciples of Jesus. 
Some believe that Jesus actually made himself a home there um, later, um, before his ministry, uh, later in his life. Uh, verse 1 seems to lend itself to that idea where it says that uh, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Um, so we, we might believe that. As, as is interesting for me is that sometimes we can we can read things in Scripture and think, oh, that just is an obscure detail, right? And we don't really think much about it. But when you, you dig in a little bit deeper, you can find out there's some purpose behind this. Um, there, there's a reason why he, he is here in this town. It's no question that the small fish, fishing village could have some great influence. That, that word from here would spread quickly. That the Sea of Galilee, I mean, any body of water in that day would have been like an a, a inlet for communication to take place because that was the lifeblood of, of many of the communities. And so here's this, this body of water. It's connected to the Jordan River. Um, and Jesus is building his early ministry in here. And as we enter Mark 2, that's exactly what's taking place. Word is slowly leaching out about who Jesus is. Now, the people have gathered, they gathered in great numbers at this house. Modest homes in that day wouldn't even had doors. Even the nicer of homes that did have doors would have often been open because in that day, hospitality was huge and people only shut their doors if they demanded privacy. So here they are, all these people gathered around and they have high expectations. They wanted answers. They needed healing. They had hoped for miracles. They had come flocking to Jesus with their, their problems. Thelma and Victor Hayes struck it rich in August of 2005 when the couple won a $7 million lottery in, uh, in Canada. Now, they had been married for 63 years. They were both 89 years old uh, when they, they hit the lottery. Um, and a news company came out and did what, well, what typically news companies do when somebody um, wins the lottery. And they asked them the question, what are you going to do with all your money? The couple's response was very modest. In fact, they said, well, we intend to remain in our current retirement home where we're living. The husband said, I would like to buy myself a new Lincoln Town car. And then Thelma um, said she had one item on her personal shopping list. She told reporters, I'm going to get myself a new pair of nylons. I want a new pair of hose, right? I wonder, though, is that how we treat God? You know, through Christ, we've been given the ability to talk to the creator of the universe, to send up our problems, to hand over our worries, to give him our anxieties and our fears and our questions. We've been given access to God through the son, Jesus, yet oftentimes I think we expect very little and we only come to him as a last result. The people there had, had, had heard little of Jesus, but they had a lot of hope in who he was. And that hope had brought expectations you know, I believe you can have these expectations of God, that you can have high expectations of God. According to God's word, you can have at least these six expectations. First, you can expect God's presence. In Exodus uh, chapter 33, it says, my presence will go with you. You can expect God's power. Uh, in scripture, it says, for God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And this is actually it's 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7. Uh, three, you can have God's peace. I, peace I leave with you and my peace I give you. Uh, four, you can have God's protection. You know, I love the psalmist. He constantly speaks to this idea that the Lord is his rock. He is his fortress. He's the one in whom he takes refuge in. God is his protector. 
You can expect God's plan. Um, this is sometimes hard for us to understand, but God's plan is going to be worked out, and he's going to work those things for the good of those who love him, according to Scripture. Um, and as the psalmist says, but it is God who ex- executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up the other. So we can trust that no matter the circumstance, that ultimately God's plan will be worked. And if we're following the Lord, it'll be worked for the good of those who love him. And six, we can expect God's provision, and God will meet all of our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. But often, when, when life has problems, when things get real bad, we only go to God at the very last of moments. You know, Oswald Chambers said, we tend to use prayer as a last result, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. I think we can have higher expectations of God because I believe the God of this universe has the power to meet those expectations. And the people that gathered there in Mark 2, they had some high expectations of Jesus. Second, though, I believe this, that we, can have, we should have faithful friends. You know, when you put the right people around you, they're going to help you to get to the right place. Picking up in the story in verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, uh, carried by four of them, since they could not get get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat of the man the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, the house is so full that people are spilling out along the streets. The guys have heard that, that Jesus, the miracle worker, is here. They've gotten their buddy. They've run to the home, and upon arriving, they're disappointed. There is no way we're going to get ourselves and him on the stretcher in front of there. Now, they could have given up, right? They could have just been like, well, man, have to do it another day. Keep laying there. But they won't let him stop him. Now, it's common in that day for a house to have an outside set of stairs up to the top of the roof. So they walk up the stairs with their friend on this, uh, this backboard, and they get to the top, and the top would have been a flat roof. Um, it had like a sod-like material covering some planks. It wouldn't have been much for them to, to pull this, this up and to, to lower him down to the plank. But all the same, it's, it's quite the unusual um, situation. Can't you imagine the scene? I mean, these guys running with their buddy on the stretcher to get to Jesus. Oh, man, the house is packed. Hey, man, look, the the stairs. Let's go in. Let's let's drop him down there. Well, what are we going to drop him down with? Take off your belt. No, you take off your belt. Let's take all of our belts off. That'll give us enough room to lower him down. And here they are, and this man comes dropping down into the middle of the scene like a disco ball in front of Jesus, right? I mean, that's that's what's taking place. Friendships like these are hard to come by these days. I mean, people that will just do anything, they'll, they'll, drop, they'll drop anything to see to it that um, we're helped, we're encouraged, or we're challenged. You know, a recent article in the magazine Relevant um, said that social media is ruining relationships. Here's six reasons why they said that. It says that social media is creating a false sense of intimacy, that they make you think you know people, but you really don't know them right? A second, that it's fostering the illusion of community. I have a huge group of friends, and all these friends, they care about all my problems because they liked me a hundred times, and they commented on my posts, and man, I have a huge group of friends, but when the going gets tough, where's the friends in that moment? 
Three, they keep us from being fully known because a lot of us don't spill our real deep hurts on social media, so we don't really have anybody that will challenge us or help us in the things that we truly struggle with. Four, they turn us inward. Um, I, I find this one interesting, right? Here it is, this, this social platform is supposed to be for us to connect to others, but we're more concerned about having the best selfie with the best filter on it or the best picture of our family or giving off this great idea that we have it all together and we, we could really care less about all the, the people that we're connected with. Uh, five, they're setting unrealistic expectations of life. I think this is something that uh, sometimes ministers struggle with. Um, uh, that Look, we can't remember 950 birthdays, all right? Uh, and uh, on Facebook, you can't remember 950 birthdays. Uh, and, but sometimes you miss one, you forget to say, say something, and somebody feels a little slighted by you. And the final one is they're making us good storytellers, but not so good at story living. I caught myself doing this the other day. I took my daughter to the park. She'd never been in a swing before, so I put her in a swing, and I got my camera out, and I started to let the swing go, and I was trying to record, and I realized I was missing the moment. I was missing the moment of actually seeing the joy on her face for the first time of being in a, in a swing, um, because I was more concerned with getting the video. You've done this before, right? You, the family's out on the beach, you guys are taking a vacation, and the sun's going down, and you're like, okay, everybody, let's get the best shot with the sun going down in the background, and you spend 20 minutes as the sun descends uh, over the horizon uh, trying to get the best picture, and you miss the best part about the vacation so that you can have a, something to supposedly remember it by. We forget to live in the moment sometimes. Now, we could easily talk about how bad company and corrupts good character in regard to this situation, but that's not the point. The point is that friends that care about you will do anything for you, the best thing for you. And sometimes the best thing for you is to have a hard conversation and to push you a little bit and to challenge you. Sometimes the best thing for you is to encourage you when you're having some self-doubt. According to God's word, a friendship looks something like this when we have the attitude of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So how can you build friendships like this? I think your best bet is to find ways to get involved in this place. Uh, find ways to connect with other believers of, of like precious faith. You know, we mentioned in our announcements that our small groups, they're on a short break. They're taking the next few weeks off uh, because of spring break and a lot of people go in different directions, but they're going to be kicking back off on April the 1st. This is a perfect time for you to get connected with a small group. It's a seven-week commitment. Um, they'll be meeting for the next uh, seven weeks starting the 1st. You'll be done before the summer. Um, it's going to build some relationships for you and help you get to know somebody in a deeper way and Start to build some friendships with them. Or right in your chairs right now, you have this list of the nine opportunities, the top nine opportunities to serve here at Bethany. Serving is one of the best ways that you can encourage others and help others, but it's also a way that you get yourself in an environment where you can build some friendships. Um, you know, the first summer that I was here, I served on our landscaping team, and I was uh, partnered up with uh, a gentleman in our congregation um, that, that was quite a bit older than me, and he and I got connected, and we were able to, to uh, meet every week we, we, when we were asked to, to cut the grass, and here we were, life on life, being encouraged. He, he helped me get to know Washington a little bit better. I'm grateful for that friendship that got built because I stepped out and found a way to, to serve. It's going to take you being a little bit vulnerable, um, but you need to find a place 
in this place to get connected and to build some friendships. And friendships don't get built overnight, um, but when they are built, they are a tangible representation of Christ. Three, I think we learned this from the story, that we can have hope. You know, pessimism never gets you anywhere. According to a recent CNBC study, uh, news reports are saying that you have a better chance of being successful if you're optimistic, right? If you have a positive mindset, if you have hope, hope can literally change your life. The Pharisees, though, seem to be constantly pessimistic. Picking back up our story in verse 6, it says this. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, right? Jesus has just said your sins are forgiven. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, I don't think Jesus has necessarily like read their mind. That's not what I think is going on here. I think he's just reading the cues on their facial expressions, and their arms are probably crossed. They're probably thinking, whoa, 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 what's this guy saying? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The situation seems a little different than the, the parable last week. The Pharisees are not listening in from a distance, right? Last week they were kind of off in the distance, almost like scoffing at Jesus. Now they're like right front and center. Um, it seems like this might have been the attitude at first for Jesus. This is early in his ministry. And here, here they are, and they're, they're almost they're giving him a chance. But as soon as he says this, your sins are forgiven, whoa. If Jesus is claiming to be God, if he's insinuating that he's God, well, this is a blasphemous offense, and this would have given them the right to stone him immediately. Notice, however, Jesus' lack of the personal pronoun, I. Uh, going back to verse 5, he didn't say, I forgive your, your sins. Jesus left just enough room for himself to live another day. But the Pharisees couldn't seem to find hope in Christ. Because of the law, uh, they weren't sure about who this Messiah was, why would be. They had some ideas of what they thought he should be. So their pessimism stands in the way of them seeing a miracle. Uh, Jesus communicated forgiveness in this moment. Now, some scholars believe there's one of three things going on. Some say that Jesus could simply be implying God's forgiveness. When somebody gives their life over to the Lord in the baptistry, I, or a minister will often imply God's forgiveness, right? When you take this step and you, you are buried with Christ and raised to walk a new life, you have been forgiven of your sins. I'm not saying I forgive those sins. I'm just pointing you to Christ. So that could be what Jesus is doing. It's an easy explanation in this story. Or Jesus could be acting as God with this statement, which would give the Pharisees every reason to take Jesus' life. He could be claiming that he had the power to be God and was God. Uh, verse 10 would seem to lend itself to this. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what verse 10 says. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's this underlying theme that some call the messianic secret. It's, it's, a, it's a, something that we could talk about for days, really. Um, but the messianic secret is this idea that um, Jesus often asked in his early ministry for people to stay quiet about the healing or the teaching that he had just performed. 
Now, why would he do this? Why, why wouldn't Jesus say, go tell everybody? Didn't he want everybody to know about him? That's the quick question we ask ourselves. But Jesus also knew that he needed time to build rapport. He needed time to continue to teach. He needed time to prepare the disciples in this ministry. So there was a sense of like, I need to keep things quiet. So when he says the son of man, that terminology son of man, he didn't say son of God, he said son of man. This was in a sense some sort of veiling of this idea. Um, still yet... Um, it's pretty clear that this is probably the moment in which the Pharisees are like, okay, you, you can mark Jesus' death back to this moment. Like this is the moment where they say, we've got to find a way to get rid of this guy because he is claiming to have the ability to forgive sins. Or three, it could mean that Jesus represents something else. He represents the whole essence of who God is. Um, he represents the attitude that God had towards people, the attitude that was the very reverse of the attitude that people expected. It was a, an attitude of, of perfect love, of a heart yearning to, to, to love us and eager to forgive. Jesus shows man the attitude of God, that he is this representation of forgiveness to us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says this in the first half of that verse, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Literally meaning that in some way or another, Jesus communicates God's forgiveness. By coming to the earth, Jesus was forgiveness. Now, do we have to pick one of those three ideas? I don't think so. I think it can stand for all three of those things, that he conveyed God's forgiveness, that he said, I am God and I have the power to forgive, and that he was the example and representation of forgiveness to us. But what do you do with forgiveness? Now, each and every one of you have the opportunity to be forgiven, to have those same words spoken to you. Your sins are forgiven. Some of you have accepted that gift. The first thing you need to know of this, of forgiveness, is you must believe it. That's why Christ came to the earth. You must literally believe that Jesus was the son of God and he came to this earth and he now has the ability to forgive our sins. The Pharisees hadn't yet believed that. The paralyzed man would soon come to believe that. We have to believe it. Second, we need to confess it. You know, confessing our need for forgiveness is huge. Confess to God and confess to a trusted Christian friend. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. You know, health in that day was often uh, attributed to one's sinfulness. So was the man paralyzed because of his sin? I don't know. I, I think that's debatable. But sin has wrecked the physical body. Um, one of the punishments of sinfulness is physical death. Uh, physical death is a cost of, of sinfulness. So what's that mean for us today? Well, doctors clearly link psychological, mental, and emotional health to our physical health. You know, those struggling with depression are 20% more likely to be obese, and those that are obese are 25% more likely to struggle with depression. Anxiety disorders are easily linked to issues like thyroid disease, respiratory problems, arthritis, um, constant migraine issues, and more. Look, our emotional and spiritual health is connected to our physical well-being. For some of you, that's a sin that happened years and years and years ago, something that you did and you feel, you feel, you feel bad about it. There's, 
There's, there's pain when you think back to that situation. Or it's decisions that you made or a relationship that has broken you. And when you think back about that, it hurts you, but you've never truly accepted forgiveness for that. And there is a sense that your physical body is paying the prices because you're harboring something that God is saying, I have forgiven you for. Three, though, we need to do this with forgiveness. We need to extend it. And we talked a little bit about this last week, about our need to forgive others. Matt said it like this in a sermon in the past. He said, your refusal to forgive or your desire for revenge cancels out the grace of God. Bitterness is like an acid. It does more damage to the container in which it's stored than the object of which it is poured. Right? We, can't, we can't be bitter in our hearts and not forgiving to others and truly accept forgiveness ourselves. We need to extend forgiveness. And finally, we need to accept it, which leads us to our last truth this morning, that we can have confidence, because you can't walk unless you, well, unless you get up. The story ends in verse 10, saying this. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And he got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. But what would have happened if the man would have looked at Jesus and said, hmm, I'm, too, I'm too scared to try, Jesus. I, I don't think I can. Uh, I'm not sure you can actually heal me. What if he would have laid there on the mat, kind of looked both ways, and Matt's good with me. I'll stay here on the mat, right? Right? And now it seems absurd to think something like that, that somebody in their right mind would pass up a miracle. Now, I'm not sure what the miracle is that you're asking for. Maybe it's to be healed from a physical illness, or maybe it's for a family member or a friend that has a physical illness. And cancer is back. The biopsy doesn't look good. The doctors aren't sure what to do, and you're just saying, God, we need a miracle right now. Maybe you've given up hope to have children of your own. And you've been told by doctor after doctor that there's just no way you're going to be able to conceive. And now you are praying for a miracle. You're praying, God, please, please allow me to have a child. Let my, my womb conceive a child. Maybe it's for you, it's a chronic pain. Like, there are a lot of guys, a lot of women that I know that have this chronic pain issue, right? It's back pain, shoulder pain, it's chest pain, it's migraines, and you're going, I, just, I would be so much more happy if I didn't have this issue, and you're praying for a miracle to take it away. I'm not sure what your miracle is that you're asking for, and honestly, I'm not sure if God will answer that miracle on this side of heaven, but I am sure that you can have a confidence that our God has the ability to do the miraculous. Why do I say that? How do I know that? Because he has. The miracle of death coming to life defies science and logic. It's what Jesus did, right? The resurrection, death to life. But that's your story as well. Now, Scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life. The miracle of love displayed on the cross and the triumph over the grave gives life. Your sins are forgiven. That's the miracle in this moment. Your sins are forgiven. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. So what's that mean for you? It means get up and walk. 
Every day that you confidently walk in the grace of God is a representation of the miracle of him taking a sinner and turning them into a saint. We can't sit still when we understand this. We have to have a confidence in our salvation, knowing that he who began a good work in us will carry that out into completion. So does God still do miracles? Yes. I believe any time somebody gives themselves over into that baptistry and they say, you know what, I've made some mistakes. I, I've lived a life that, uh, that hasn't honored God. I'm sinful. One sin or a million sins are all in need of a Savior. And they are buried with Christ and they're raised to walk a new life. Anytime that happens, a miracle has happened. The dead have come to life. The lame have walked. I'm not sure where you're at in this equation. I'm not sure where you find yourself. Maybe you're on the mat and you're the one saying, I need forgiveness. Maybe for you, you're one of the friends carrying the mat and you have somebody you know, but you've just never really spoke to this idea to them. You've never really shared with them their, well, their brokenness and how they can find a savior who has forgiven them. And you need to have that conversation this week. And you're just saying, I know that in my heart. And God, please help me to do that. Maybe for you, for years ago, you made a, a life-changing decision to give a, yourself over to the Lord and to be forgiven of your sins. But you're kind of like the guy laying there that doesn't accept the miracle. And you need to accept it. And you need to stand up and you need to be confident in your salvation. But wherever you're at this morning, we want to help you take those steps of faith. I'm going to be over here by the baptistry. Matt will be over there with me as well. If you have decisions of faith that you've been working out in your heart and you're not sure about, and you, you know you need to do something about it, we want to help talk with you about that. Let's stand together. We're going to sing the song of invitation and continue to worship the Lord this morning.